Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 549. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well... The weather's changed for for a few days at least. I'm looking out and it's a sight I've never seen for a long, long time. It is pouring down outside here. I'm missing watering me hanging baskets there. They're they're still going strong, mind you. I've looked after them, you know what I mean? I've looked after them every day there, but today I'm going to miss a day. And it's just the reason why it is absolutely pouring down. And it's it's a little bonus for the gardens you know what I mean it's just been baked dry and we're still you know right across Europe we're going into record temperatures it's both Spain and Portugal uh today probably going to hit their all-time highest record ever in in Europe you know it's it's had some strange weather I mean, when you think, it wasn't that long ago when we were wrapping up so well for Beast from the East, and I think we had three or four of them making appearance. Then we get this weather. Oh, dear me, what's going on with the world? We're heading to doom, I tell you, doom. Right then, it is a good good show today, a great story. We have an original. It is The Third Man by Michael Reed. Tell you what's coming up then. We have that story, as I mentioned, and we have our very own, our very own Ames. We're looking back at genre history. Now, Perion was standing last week at 4.18, and as you know, the, the beginning of the month so was a rocky a rocky time for the sofa. Woof, we went down again. We are now, unfortunately, 13 Mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know. Just, come on, get yourselves pulled together. Let's how, how it's like it's like losing a football match, you know what I mean? Lift your heads how we let's oh, just walk back to the changing rooms. So if you can support, you know what I mean, it just helps so much, man. Step stress from me. Two people have. Two people have stepped up that line. So a big thank you to Nigel Parry. Nigel, thank you so much. Yes, sir. Are you there? <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. And here we go. Sven Hendrik Magotosh. No, Sven, it's that surname. Sven Hendrik Magotish. Magotish. Is that right, Sven? Magotish. Sven, you have the honour this this the beginning of the month for me to butcher your name. Thank you so much for doing for putting yourself there. Thank you indeed. So 
We will get into the main fiction. Like I say, it's The Third Man by Michael Reed. This story is an original for Starship Sofa, which is always a pleasure. Big thank you to Jeremy and to Gary for sorting this out. Michael Reed lives near Toronto, Canada, where he divides his time between studying the stars and, sto- and writing stories set among them. His work has appeared in Interzone, Escape Pod, and Cast of Wonders, and you can follow him on Twitter. And there's a He's michaelareed.com as well. This story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded four Farfetch Fables and The Cursed Inn, and you can find him at Twitter as well with a link on there. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Third Man by Michael Reed What's the point of making me write another report when you know I'm just going to tell the unvarnished truth? I'm well aware of what the Directorate wants me to say. You want a tidy explanation for the headlines. You need me to slap together some plausible lies that preserve the Directorate's credibility and destroy mine. You need me to say I was jealous of Wu's starring role in the mission, or trot out some bullshit gay panic defense. But you've read my psych profile. Hell, you wrote my psych profile. You know there's no way on this or any other planet I'm going to say I killed Jason Wu. Let's get this straight. It didn't bother me that Wu got to be the first to set foot on B.E. We were the first crew to land on an exoplanet, so I knew there'd be plenty of history-making moments. Plus, I'm a way better photographer than Wu, so I was happy to stand behind him with a camera, immortalizing his giant leap. My favorite shot is the one that shows Wu silhouetted in the door of the HAB module, an orange sun over one shoulder and a white one over the other. He's doing his arms-akimbo Superman pose, He had a thing for superheroes. You can just about see his imaginary cape flapping in the breeze. That photo is how I want people to remember him. But most people look at these photos and they look right past Wu, out to those trees. It's the trees that make people feel like the whole thing was worth it. The years of tithing to build the translator. All the piggy banks and treasuries emptied. The trees were great, but I feel like it's my job in this report to convince you that they were possibly the least interesting thing we discovered. Let's do due diligence for the trees. If you're one of the handful of people who still haven't seen the photos, imagine black sequoia asparagus, and you'll have the basic idea. The first time I touched the bark of a giant sequoia was just outside San Francisco. I was maybe 10 or 11. I remember my mom told me that when that tree was a sapling... Caesar still ruled Europe. Blew my mind. But even sequoias are like blades of grass compared to the trees on B.E. When those trees were saplings, Homo habilis was still pondering its first excursion out of Africa. Count yourself lucky that you got to see those photos at all. Wu's mother did her damnedest to get a publication ban. I'm not really in directorate circles anymore, but I think it's pretty clear they paid her off to get her to drop the lawsuits. How else would she have afforded that Shanghai penthouse? You know what? Good for her. Honestly, I know she hates me. 
She believes I killed her son, and she has to watch billions of people, a minority, but still billions, laud me as a hero. How is she supposed to feel? I get why people think I killed her son. Wu and I were very different people, and cynics believe we could never have gotten along, that it was all a front to appease the media and the politicians, but that's just not how it was. The truth is, Wu was the brother I never had. We both grew up jonesing for B.E. I was nine when those first grainy close-ups came out, showing the mysterious black smudges that clung to the equator of B.E. That was a big deal after the Proxima disappointment. I fell hard for those pictures. Half a world away, in Shenyang, Wu was freaking out too. Neither of us could understand the spectroscopy results, the importance of the oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere in the oceans. All that mattered to us as kids was that there were forests on another planet. We both knew we had to go. Keep in mind, this was all in 2051, when interstellar travel was still pure science fiction. Since the Americans had failed to find life on Mars in the 30s, enthusiasm for space had waned. We had a few pokey space stations, but that was it. Those photos of the forests on B.E.? They greased a lot of gears. By the time I was 11, there was a permanent Chinese moon base. Japan and India both achieved self-sufficiency on Mars before my 16th birthday. You can get to Mars by strapping yourself to a few glorified fireworks. But reaction mass propulsion is basically useless for interstellar travel. God himself could fill the tanks of a Saturn V with molten rainbows, and it still wouldn't get you to another star. Thankfully, we didn't have to rely on God. We had Sitara Siddiqui. I was 19 when Siddiqui dropped her bombshell. So was she. Imagine this lowly physics undergrad in Tehran, never published a scientific paper in her life, posting her translator theory on the internet after her professors told her it was garbage. I hear some physics bigwig at JPL read it and ran for the red phone. No one who lived through the American-Iranian standoff of 62 will ever forget it. I still get flashbacks to those images of the Supreme Leader's hand hovering over the Armageddon button, while the good old boys opened silos and armed warheads. Siddiqui tried to catapult us to the stars, but she never dreamed she might send us there on a cloud of radioactive ash. I actually met Siddiqui a few times, after she was smuggled out of Iran. Once, a few weeks before launch, we stood together in the Directorate's lunar headquarters, overlooking the crater carved out on one side of the moon. The translator was an impressive bit of machinery. Sometimes, I think only Siddiqui herself actually understood it. The way she explained it to me, the translator uses the modified Scharnhorst effect to jack up the speed of light, then pushes the ship up to that speed in discrete jumps. You go from the moon to Alpha Centauri in a few seconds without all the lethal acceleration. How can I describe the feeling of being translated? There's this... sound. It's basically impossible to explain. Try this. Go get an orchestra, 
a choir of thousands, and a Russian conductor, and jam them all in your left ear. Ask them to play Verdi's Requiem as loud as they can, and all at once. It's basically like that. The sound is so soul-shatteringly loud, it could make a pious man from an atheist. The engineers claim the mics don't pick up the sound. Not on our flight, or any of the tests. I say check Wu's logs. He told me he wrote about it in there. But of course, the directorate won't let me read his logs. Still, I'm telling you, after the translator shoved us sweating and crying back into normal space near Alpha Centauri B, Wu and I spent a good ten minutes just sobbing and pawing helplessly at each other. Brutal. Why, you might wonder, am I telling you this, given that it bolsters Mrs. Wu's claims that translation unhinged me? Because if I'm going to convince you that I didn't kill Wu, then I need you to understand the kind of bond we had. Jason Wu and I shared things no other pair of humans have ever experienced. In the 1950s, when they were thinking about sending humans into space, psychologists worried about astronauts who got so far from Earth that they couldn't see home anymore. They thought it might unhinge them. They even had a name for it, the breakaway effect. Who hasn't heard the story of Zevlikov locking himself in his compartment on the way to Mars and insisting on being fed through a slot he cut in the door? But that's just Mars. You don't even need a telescope to see Earth from Mars. Compare that to what Wu and I went through. We're the only two humans who've ever been so far from home that we could hardly make out the sun. We've been through the ecstasy of translation together. We've stood on a planet orbiting another star. We've held alien life in our hands. None of you, none of you, can know what that was like for us, how permanently it bonded us. People imagine how it was. I've reluctantly sampled the slash fiction about our six-month glide from the translation point towards B.E. I know what people imagine. Two handsome astronauts, one straight, one gay, trapped together in a zero-G love nest for months on end. How could they possibly entertain themselves? Sorry to disappoint, but our most stimulating entertainment was watching B.E. grow slowly larger out the window. Why such a long cruise? The aim on the translator over interstellar distances is still a bit... iffy. So they deliberately aimed wide of the actual planet. As we cruised in under our own power, we had months to watch B.E. grow from a starry speck to a gray-black globe. The ship handled most of the data recording automatically. We did a few hours of analysis each day, but mostly we had copious downtime. I read a lot of books. Wu rode the stationary bike and listened to a lot of god-awful Scandinavian power metal. We weren't as lonely as you'd think. Wu and his on-again, off-again boyfriend were in an off-again phase when we left Earth, and I've never been one for long-term relationships. We were both comfortable with solitude. 
I know Mrs. Wu tells everyone that my lack of success with women shows that I'm repressing my true homosexuality. What am I supposed to say to that? Ask the directorate psychologists, I guess. We nailed the landing. Went just like The Sims. Once we were on the ground, all we wanted was to stretch our legs. Instead, we had to spend most of our first full day on B.E. stuck in the hab, checking the atmosphere for nasties that our suits might not be able to filter out. When we did finally put boots to soil, I pretty much had to hold the back of Wu's collar to stop him making a beeline for the trees. He was hell-bent on proving the life-on-B.E. skeptics wrong. So many cynical people claimed that the things that looked like trees from orbit were really just mineral formations, that the whole mission had been a catastrophic waste of resources. We didn't even need to reach the trees to prove them wrong. I found my first fossil two meters from the hab, and Wu's very first soil sample came up positive for active metabolism. The first night, we celebrated our successes. I cooked the most horrifying feast ever conjured by science. Ersatz shepherd's pie made from freeze-dried potatoes, freeze-dried soy protein isolate, and freeze-dried gravy. All rehydrated with reprocessed urine. We popped the two flasks of champagne carried from Earth and achieved the very slight degree of tipsiness allowed by directorate protocols. But you're not here for the good times, are you? You want to know when things started to go bad. Fine. Let's talk about that first night. Wu was in the bath cubby, enjoying his first gravity-enhanced shower in six months. I was lying on my bunk, trying to ignore the double sunset and focus on composing the day's mission log. At sunset, though, have you seen the pictures? Ruddy Alpha Sen B dying the trees red, while Alpha Sen A beamed white god rays directly through them? Mind-boggling. As if the double sunset wasn't enough to distract me, the seismometer had been beeping since we landed. At first, we worried the mini-quakes might get worse, that we might have to abort on the first day. Wu put those fears to rest when he figured out it was the trees causing the tremors. Each leaf on those monster trees is big enough to shade a baseball diamond. The lower leaves are petrified and heavy as hell, so when they fall, you feel it. Wu was watching the trees through binoculars when he realized each falling leaf was followed by a seismometer beep. No need to abort. So imagine me on my bunk, half-heartedly dictating my log, but mainly staring at the sunset and feeling the hab tremble. That's when the back of my neck started to prickle. I like to think I'm made of pretty stern stuff. My psych profile says as much. So I'm asking you to take me seriously when I tell you that, looking out that window, I felt something real. Something I urgently wanted to shake off. Before launch, we'd talked about how to handle panic. We talked through endless scenarios. Claustrophobia during the glide-in. Disorientation because of the two suns. 
agoraphobia stemming from the realization that you're farther from home than most people can calculate. But we never covered the sudden and overpowering feeling of being watched. I remembered the generic advice. Breathe deeply from your gut. Remind yourself you're safe and well-armed. There's an emergency launch mode that can have you off the surface in three minutes. The surveys said there was no chance of intelligent life on B.E. No signs of cities or ruins, no nightside lights, and not the faintest wisp of radio. Since landing, neither Wu nor I had seen anything move, except those falling leaves. The camera array showed nothing around the hab. Therefore, logically, nothing could be watching me. I listened to the water running in the bath cubby, to Wu's enthusiastically awful singing. Eventually, I managed to pry my eyes away from the window and force myself to focus on my work. But I couldn't shake the feeling that, while I was looking away, I was giving whatever was out there a chance to get closer. I considered getting Wu, suiting up, going out for a look. But how would I explain that in the log? Bedtime? Checked for monsters under the hab? Not exactly words for posterity. Wu went right to the window when he came out of the bath cubby. He stood there, humming and toweling himself off. He raved about the sunset. Slowly, the feeling started to fade. Maybe Wu's casual assurance broke whatever spell I'd been under. Or maybe whatever had been out there moved on. I was too embarrassed to mention it to Wu. Huge mistake. The next morning, we unpacked the drones and sent them to explore the forest. Wu was itching to roll out the Hummer, so we drove around a little bit. He was still gunning for the forest, but I vetoed that. Not until we know it's safe, I told him. Safety first, right? Let the drones map the woods, find the best routes. Then we'd go exploring. Besides, even if we stayed within a short walk of the hab, we'd have an entire ecosystem of alien life to explore. Except, as it turned out, we didn't. If there had ever been a web of life on B.E., it had long ago given up the ghost. We spent a few days driving around gathering samples, but they were mostly fossils. Aside from the trees, all we found were a few lichens and microbes, nothing that slithered, swam, or crawled, nothing with eyes to watch us. On our fifth morning, I agreed to a short sortie into the forest. Wu drove, I watched the drone telemetry. I set the drones to Doppler the hell out of the trees and let us know the moment a leaf so much as quivered. Wu cranked his playlist of ear-bleedingly awful metal, which by that point was almost starting to grow on me, and away we went. We were only a few hundred meters in when my neck started prickling again. Not even Wu's singing would drive it away this time. I wish I'd said something. I wish I'd insisted we turn back. 
Wu would have grumbled, but he would have understood. And he'd still be alive. But again, I didn't say anything. I sat there, trying to focus through the feeling, trying to concentrate on the telemetry. Wu was oblivious, head-banging with the beats as we drove along at the Hummer's grandmotherly top speed of 30 kilometers per hour. This is the point where I need you, all of you, any of you, to really listen to me. I can tell when I look into the eyes of anyone who asks for my story that all they really want is to be able to slot it into some nice, safe, conventional slot. People don't care what happened. They care about categorizing what happened. It's got to be a murder mystery or a tragic space accident. Box it and move on. But unless someone actually listens to me, you'll never discover what's actually out there. The easy, tidy summary of what happened is this. The Hummer hit a tree. A leaf fell on us, and Wu died. I have every second of the drone video memorized. I spent six months alone in that HAB module with that bloodied suit, headed for the translation point. You'd better believe I watched it over and over, trying to make sense of it. The first part is easy enough to follow. You can see the left front wheel of the Hummer dip into a sandy patch of soil and start sinking. The Hummer flips and rolls four times downhill, picking up a huge cloud of dust before it whacks into the tree. The leaf that killed Wu broke free from the tree nine seconds after we hit the trunk. In B.E.'s low gravity, it took seven seconds to fall. That's sixteen long seconds during which Wu and I just lay there while death descended. I know I blacked out. I sincerely hope Wu did, too. And that's it for easily slotted truths. This is where I start saying the things that even my friends stop believing. Do you know what it's like, knowing that people sleep better, believing you're a murderer, than grappling with the truth? There's a simple way to sort all this out. Go back to B.E. I know the directorate says it isn't interested in going back, that it's got the samples it needs, that it can't justify spending trillions more to establish my guilt or innocence. And that's why I hope this report leaks. This is way bigger than me, or the directorate, or even Wu. The mystery I brought back is so much bigger than some tawdry tabloid tale. This isn't about guilt or innocence. Hang me if you have to. But go back to B.E. Let's talk about the inconsistencies. The things that don't add up. They start right after the crash. Why did the drones decide to fly back to the HAB module and stow themselves? Yes, it would make sense for me to dismiss the cameras if I was about to murder Wu. Except the logs show the order was sent by the haptics inside Wu's suit, not mine. 
I doubt I was even awake when that happened. When I did wake up, I sure as hell wasn't worrying about the drones. The Hummer was on its side, it hurt to breathe, blood was dripping on my visor, but I couldn't tell whether it was mine or Wu's. All I remember was calling for Wu, and then I must have blacked out again. So how did I get back to the Hab? Oh, I know what the Hab's cameras show. They show someone emerging from the tree line, then limping and stumbling hundreds of meters back to the Hab. Obvious interpretation. It was me. The logs confirm that it was my suit that unlocked the Hab door. The forensics guys say the footage from the Hab camera hasn't been altered. Fine. Except I'm telling you, the person in the video isn't me. Whoever that is, notice that they're wearing a nearly spotless suit. You have my actual suit. It's smeared with blood. The test showed it's a mix of my blood and Wu's. If the video is real, and I walked all that way in a clean suit, how did I get Wu's blood on me after I entered the hab? Did I carry a vial of it with me and smear it on my suit afterward? Why would I do that? And how could I possibly have walked back to the hab in the first place? The drone telemetry says we were more than 11 kilometers from the hab when the accident happened. There is no way I could have walked that far. First of all, I was injured. Second, walking in the soil on B.E. is like walking in talcum powder. It's exhausting. I would have been huffing and puffing the whole way. All I've got with me in the video is the little emergency oxygen canister built into my suit, which is rated for half an hour of normal exertion. Elite runners take 30 minutes to run 10 kilometers. I'm supposed to have covered 11 using limited oxygen while injured. People say I used Wu's suit for part of the trip. How would that even work? Kill Wu? Wrestle him out of his miraculously pristine suit? Walk halfway back in my bloodied suit? then change into his suit when my oxygen runs out? If that's what happened, how come it was my suit that opened the door and came back to Earth with me, spattered with both our blood? The person in the video isn't carrying a second suit. All these convoluted explanations, they're just coping strategies. They're an attempt to avoid confronting the truth that that's not me in the video. What I don't understand is why people are so reluctant to believe the one thing they most hoped we'd find out there. You can believe that we were lucky enough to find a habitable planet on our cosmic doorstep, that some kid from Iran got us there, but not that we found something hard to explain when we got there? I think it comes down to cynicism. The directorate folks act like optimists, proselytizing about a bold new future beyond the solar system and raising trillions of dollars in tithes. 
They promised awe and wonder and discovery, and people happily opened their pockets. But when I actually find awe and wonder and discovery, admittedly wrapped in tragedy, people close their minds. I get ten times madder when I think of the mockery it makes of Wu's sacrifice. I hope you realize I'm not writing this for the bureaucrats at the directorate. I'm writing this hoping that it will leak. I'm speaking directly to the billions of people who've tithed for years to send Wu and I to B.E. I'm speaking to every kid in Boise or Guangzhou or Lahore who broke open their piggy banks and sent the money to the directorate. And here's what I want to say. You got your money's worth. Don't let anyone tell you that you didn't. Don't let them tell you I'm a liar, that all we found was a planet near the end of its twilight years, that I killed the best man I've ever known because he stepped onto B.E. before I did. We found so much more than you're being led to believe. Do you still need convincing? Here's one last detail. I don't think this has leaked yet. It's something that keeps the forensics guys up at night. The default launch sequence for the HAB takes eight minutes. Eight minutes from the time you press launch until the HAB lifts off. There's a riskier emergency launch sequence that can get you off the ground in three minutes. Three minutes. You know how long it took the HAB to get off the ground from the moment my FOB supposedly opened the door? 49 seconds. So you've got a question to answer. I hope this question sticks in your mind. That maybe it'll motivate another kid like Siddiqui to figure out how to build a translator out of hubcaps and dental floss. Because Lord knows the Directorate isn't going to finance another mission. It cost the life of Jason Wu for us to learn that we should be asking this question. Wu was a smart, brave, and just plain good human being. For his sake, I hope someone will try to answer this question. If the bigness of the possible answers scares you, focus on the smallness of the question, which is simply this. Two minutes and eleven seconds before I got back to the HAB, who pressed launch? And there you go. Wow, Michael. Michael, sir. Hey, just keep writing. Thank you. Honestly, thank you so much, especially letting Starship Sova have that story. Wow, man. Anthony, that's it, man. That was fantastic. Wow, it just takes you away, man. That's what I want. You know what I mean? That's exactly what I want in a story. I don't want to be, you know, listening to kind of the narrator. I just want to be took away, and you do that perfectly. Thank you so much. Now then, here, here she is. Come on, attention, everyone. Smart yourselves up. It's our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. I'm really looking forward to talking about today's topic. First, I'd like to give a shout-out thanks to Rachel S. Cordasco, who continues to work tirelessly on behalf of SF in Translation. And through her Twitter, through the website SF in Translation, through her podcasting work, 
has helped many of us keep up with what works of World SF are now being translated and published for English readers. And actually, that's how I came to learn of today's work that I want to focus on. It's a terrific novel, and it's also an historically important one. I want to talk about the all-time bestseller work of Catalan fiction, not to mention Catalan science fiction. Students study it in Catalan schools, and it is now available for English readers to enjoy. It is 1974's Typescript of the Second Origin by Manuel de Pedrolo. This is not only an important work, but a thoroughly engaging one. I read through it quite quickly and had to sort of hold back and force myself to, to pace my reading. Quite a good novel. Let's back up and give a bit of context to the novel, shall we? Just in case you're not familiar with Catalonia, it is an autonomous community in Spain. It's up on the northeastern extremity of the Iberian Peninsula. It's designated as a nationality by its law, the Statute of Autonomy, which is second only to the Spanish Constitution, which is where it originates. Catalonia's largest city, its capital, is Barcelona. Both the Catalan people and language have a long history and a long tradition of perseverance and staying power. Manuel de Pedrolo is a luminary of Catalan fiction. He lived from 1918 until 1990, and he took it as his mission, in no small part because of the censorship and oppression faced by Catalonia thanks to the fascism of Franco, to champion the depth and breadth of Catalan fiction, and he did so by basically writing every kind of fiction there is, every kind of literature. He had 128 published works from short stories, novels, plays, poetry, you name it. In a way, he had a sort of similar situation with Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes in that Typescript of the Second Origin was so popular that it overshadowed a lot of his other work, work that in some cases he cared about quite a bit more. But at the same time, he never looked down his nose at science fiction. Uh, he believed that, well, kind of like Theodore Sturgeon did, a lot of science fiction, a lot of everything is trash, but he believed that really good science fiction could be really good literature. Science fiction had literary merit. And in fact, he thought science fiction and genre fiction as a whole was essential in expanding the readership and popularity of Catalan literature across the world. He was also a translator of works in other languages into Catalan, and he ultimately received the highest honors in Catalan literature, many awards, although he also remained sort of a step out of sync with the literati of his area and with critics. And so even as he was celebrated, he was also, in a sense, an outsider. This brand new 2018 English translation of Typescript of the Second Origin is from Wesleyan University Press. 
The translation is by Sarah Martin, and the foreword is by a science fiction author who needs no introduction to Starship Sofa listeners, Kim Stanley Robinson. So what is Typescript of the Second Origin about? It is a story of two young people, a 14-year-old girl named Alba and a 9-year-old boy named Didak, who survive an alien attack. They survive this attack because they both happened to be underwater at the time. Uh, Didak was being beaten up and bullied by some of the local boys and thrown into the water, into a lake, and passing Alba sees this and jumps in to save him. And so the two are underwater when alien ships pass over. And when they resurface, they discover lots of bodies and lots of toppled buildings, first in their village and then as they explore more throughout their region. It's a kind of Adam and Eve as Robinson Crusoe story. And it raises some really interesting questions. We get typescript from the fact that different sections uh, of the book, different pages, are numbered, and that number is supposed to correspond to presumably handwritten pages that were eventually typed up into the version that we have now. So it's a kind of found manuscript work, too. The account follows our two protagonists as they learn to be self-sufficient and persevere and really make the choice not to look backwards, but to look forwards. As the story explains, and I quote, their history had started the moment they had decided to be an origin rather than an end, end quote. And that's a beautiful summation of the whole book, really. It was not intended by the author to be a young adult book, but it quickly became a huge hit with young people, and from 1976 on, it's been taught in schools. It also has had a comic adaptation and a television adaptation, a film adaptation, and it has been translated into eight other languages before this 2018 edition now makes it available to English readers. Okay, I think we all know I'm a sucker for post-apocalyptic scenarios. I mean, Mary Shelley's The Last Man is one of my favorite novels. But I think one of the reasons this has had such an impact is because of the main characters. In fact, the translator notes in her foreword that in his only television appearance in 1983, Pedrolo said, I treat my characters with more tenderness, the more unfortunate they are, since we are all unhappy. And I think this affection and respect for his characters really comes through. You have this 14-year-old girl and this 9-year-old boy taking on such tremendous responsibility, because not only do they want to survive, and they want each other to survive, but they also feel the weight of future generations on their shoulders. And so there's a question of what they will preserve and what they will maintain in order to provide future generations as the legacy of the humanity that came before. Apparently, one of the, albeit few, criticisms made about the novel is about how able these two young people are. It takes place over a four-year period, so by the end, for example, Alba is 18. 
I didn't have a problem with their overall competence. First of all, they do make mistakes. Secondly, they're very aware of what they don't know. And so they go and find books, they read libraries, they try to teach themselves things they think are necessary, filling in gaps in their own personal educations. But I think there's a couple of other things going on too. For one, they are both from a rural village And given their context, it's not unusual that they might know how to raise a kitchen garden or feed chickens or things like this. And secondly, both of them, even for their context, are quite unusual. Didak has learned self-sufficiency in a way because he is an outsider. He is the son of a single mother, and he is biracial. He's been bullied and picked on, and so he goes off and does his own thing. And I think it's also believable that Alba is particularly able because she was thoughtful enough and self-aware enough and brave enough to stand up for the bullied boy against the bullies. So in that sense, she's quite a remarkable character. And I don't have a difficult time believing that she would, for example, think about how to preserve human culture for her future children. In his foreword, Kim Stanley Robinson makes some really astute points, I think, about this book, which he calls a successful and powerful work of science fiction. He basically talks about reading works like this in two different ways. First, as a what-if thought experiment about the future. This doesn't even require buying the idea of an alien attack, any kind of rapid population drop would create the same kind of devastation we see in this book. And the question of where do you go from there? How do you survive? What do you preserve? What motivation do you have for going on and starting all over again? That's really powerful. But there's also this metaphorical level. And here I want to read just a bit of what Kim Stanley Robinson writes. On the symbolic level, expressing metaphorically what is happening in the present, it's obvious what Pedrolo was writing about here. Catalonia was crushed when the Franco regime took over in Spain and banned Catalan language and culture from the public sphere. In effect, Franco's regime is the alien force from the novel, an alien power that tried to annihilate Catalan culture. This is the reality that gives Pedrolo's story much of its emotional force. Alba and Didac, young Catalan survivors, persist in living. They can't be killed by enemies or discouragement. They bond and face dangers and solve their problems together. They even take the opportunity to make some improvements in the culture they were born into. What story could be more encouraging to Catalonians reading it during those years of oppression? Whether it was interpreted as a kind of allegory of the Catalonian situation or not, it would still carry that underlying emotional charge associated with endurance, with flourishing in the face of persecution. End quote. Flourishing in the face of persecution is a great way to think about this novel, to think about these two characters as they seek out other survivors, as they interact with an alien survivor, as they try to plan for the future and, in fact, create the future. Because at the very end, you have Alba giving birth to the next generation. 
It is both a hope-inducing and heart-wrenching read. And here's an example of that kind of introspective beauty and melancholy. Quote, So much beauty almost weighed down the heart, Alba said in an odd tone, and to think that without this cataclysm we would never have seen this. Didac replied, perhaps when we grew up. Alba thought, though, that an adult Didac would have been an ordinary wage earner, perhaps a car mechanic, and she? What would she have been? She was distressed by the monstrous certainty that their happiness was built on a mountain of corpses. End quote. And the novel ends on a wonderfully science-fictional note, explaining that, as many readers know, though most may be unaware, the first copy of typescript of the second origin was discovered 4,218 years before the present edition by a now-neglected scholar. And this is the section, Is Alba the Mother of Today's Humankind? And it puts this very intimate story in a much greater, more cosmic context. And so there you have it, now available to English readers, the best-selling work of Catalan science fiction, and for that matter, Catalan fiction, full stop. Check out Typescript of the Second Origin, a work that not only has made history, but also reflects history, and continues to serve as a gateway to the genre for young readers, and a revered text for adults. I thoroughly enjoyed the novel, and if you read it, I hope you do too. And I look forward to joining you again soon and talking about a completely different topic as together we take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Amy, 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 thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Jim. You are organized is not the word. It just, you know, it's there, it's there, it's there. Thank you very much, Jim. It just saves my, you know what I mean, saves my job so much trying to hunt round for stuff when it's just there. You go to Amy's folder and it's there. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much. And actually, you know, Amy's mentioned where that the writer came from. That whole Catalan area, it is a whole little kind of controversy over, I don't know if, you know, if it, in America or, say, Australia or, you know, as far-flung fields as that. You know, in the news, was it this year, last year, but, oh, they pulled away from the Spanish government, the one that had nothing to do with the Spanish parliament. And... They all voted, you know, and they've all got those, that red and orange flag. You see them hanging out, you know, when we went to Barcelona, they're all hanging out the windows, you know. It's either that or the football team. <laughs> but in the news, you know what I mean, it has, of, of late, it has been such a, you know, an important time for Catalan, you know, to try and get their independence and pull away from Spain. Anyway, we have come to the end of Starship Soap 549. Big thank you to everyone who kind of helped and put it together. The writers, the narrator, Anthony and Michael, thank you so much. Amy, whoa, Amy. Little soft spot, Amy. <laughs> and little soft spot for Jeremy and Gary as well. So, don't forget, please, if you can, come on, two quid gets you ad free. No ads, nothing like that. You start, you get the red dwarf if you're a dollar up there. I know I'm banging on and you're probably sick to death of it. But once it starts creeping down, you know what I mean? It starts getting a bit chewy and a bit kind of 
nasty. So if you can, that would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I'll get out there by and by I'll get out